Good morning, Heritage. Today is Tuesday, February 13th, 2024. This is Mr. Nice, and you are listening to The Griffin Rundown, a weekly podcast for HCA. I hope that you are listening together on the way to school this morning. This week, we will have an interview at the end of this podcast, and I, and I highly recommend that you would stay on and listen. The interview this week is with humanities teachers, uh, three of the four main humanities teachers at Heritage, Mr. Graham, Dr. Valley, and Mr. Parkin. So stay tuned for that at the end. You don't want to miss it. And we'll also provide some, uh, some of the upcoming events at HCA we'll talk about today. I'll give a charter update, a construction update, and of course, a joke of the week. But let's start with the calendar items. First off, the Spiritwear sale ends tomorrow, Wednesday. Remember, all profits from this are helping to offset the cost of the 7th and 8th grade trip to Washington, D.C., which is coming up soon in late April. And just as a reminder, also, this happens every year. The 7th and 8th graders go together. They alternate between Washington, D.C. one year and then Philly and Gettysburg the next. It's a great time for our students to, to see uh, many landmarks and, and understand much of the history and, and museums of, of our culture. It's a great trip. And then also uh, the ninth and 10th graders are gearing up to go at the same time to Williamsburg this year. Last year was Boston, this year Williamsburg. We're so thankful that the students gained these opportunities. There is no school this Friday, February 16th. Uh, it's teacher in-service day. There's also no school on Monday, which is President's Day, the 19th. So uh, I know many of you are looking forward to the long weekend and I hope many of you are, are staying, I hope everybody who goes skiing is staying safe. We'll look forward to seeing you uh, not this Friday and Monday, but next Tuesday, the 20th. Also remember that Early Childhood Preview Day is coming on the Bainbridge campus on the 21st. So please point your friends who may have uh, interest and curiosity about Heritage to our website and they can see info about that event and others on the Heritage website. Hey, March 1st is an early dismissal. Heritage is hosting the Orators Forum this year at the Peninsula Campus on March 1st at 1.30. So students will be dismissed early that day. That's Friday, March the 1st. Please keep your eyes on the weekly newsletters for more details. And don't forget about the weekly prayer times. As always, Tuesday evenings at 9 p.m. and Wednesdays in the middle of the day at 12.30 if you can catch it on your lunch hour. Again, those links are in the newsletters. I think you often will get an email from Kevin Kleppinger also reminding you of those. I, I encourage you and I invite you to join with other uh, parents in the heritage community and grandparents in the heritage community to be praying for our school and our children and all that the Lord is doing at Heritage right now. There's a, there's a lot happening with the charter and the construction and, uh, and all these things going on. So let's be praying that the Lord would actually keep our eyes first and foremost on him and that he would be drawing our children to himself and then seek his favor in all these things that are happening at our school. Hey, and Pepper Pike Campus Construction Update. Thank you so much to the families who came out again this weekend. It's great to see such uh, a team of men and women out there serving and, and clearing out uh, things that are left in these buildings in addition to various other jobs. And, and what a joy it is to see uh, hammers flying and um, seeing walls opened up and, and the men there working uh, to convert these buildings into classrooms for our children. It's such an exciting time. So uh, again, 
also be watching for more opportunities to serve in the near future. We'll get those out to you again soon. Hey, the hymn this week is How Great Thou Art. As always, I encourage you to find a version on online somewhere and be singing with your kids and talk about the lyrics that are contained within. The, these hymns uh, are good because they get stuck in your head, and it's even better than when we're able to talk with our kids about uh, the lyrics that that we're actually singing, perhaps mindlessly sometimes, um, but let's talk about them and, and point them to the scriptures and to the goodness of, of Jesus. How great thou art this week. Hey, the charter update. I, again, I'm, I encourage you to send questions that you may have to us. We continue to um, make progress on other areas of the charter because right now, as I've told you, uh, almost a month ago now, we submitted all the paperwork, the hundreds of pages of documents to the state. So now we're waiting on them to schedule their first site visit with us, which we anticipate is going to happen in March. So we're waiting for that, but continuing to do due diligence on everything else surrounding the charter. And as a reminder, families, when we get the charter in place, you will also be able to go to your district and ask about busing opportunities. We can't do that for you, but you can. And um, this, the district may provide busing to you to the campus, or they may provide you payment in lieu of that. So um, there are opportunities for you to be reaching out. If you have questions about that, you can email into the school. We'd be happy to give you more details that, that we know. Um, but again, this is something that will fall on the family to do individually to contact their district to ask about these things. So um, very thankful for the opportunity for busing help or payment in lieu. Well, and now it's time for your favorite segment and mine. It's the joke of the week. And I have with me in the studio here, one of our, I, I venture to say, extremely funny third graders from the Peninsula campus. This is Lydia. Lydia, do you want to say hi to everybody? Hi. Hi. All right, Lydia, I understand you have a funny joke that you're ready to share with everybody. Knock, knock. Who's there? A door. A, a door who? A door stands between us. Open up. <laughs> a door stands between us. Open up. Hey, but there is no real door. You tricked me. That's pretty good. Where did you learn that joke, Lydia? So my sister... She got me a joke book for my birthday. And, and it was in that joke book? Yeah. At the, your most recent birthday? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, your most recent one. Okay, it sounds like it's a pretty good joke book. A door stands between us. Open it. Hey, will you tell me something else? What's your favorite thing that you're learning in school right now? Uh, well... We're learning about birds and science, and that's really fun. Birds and science? Do you like birds? Yeah. What's a bird that you've studied recently? Um, the thermometer bird. The thermometer? I've never... What's a... Th I, I got to go back to third grade. What's a thermometer bird? Um, It's a bird that... So it has like a nest, and its eggs go in the nest, and then he puts dust over it, and he has to keep it at the perfect temperature or else the eggs will die. Oh. And you said he, is it usually the, the daddy bird that sits on on the eggs? Oh, that's pretty cool. All right, thermometer bird. I'm going to have to look it up. Hmm. <laughs> I've got a lot to learn. All right. Hey, Lydia, thanks so much for joining us today. Okay, have a great day. 
as promised, here we are going into the interview for the week. And as I prepare to welcome in Dr. Valley, Mr. Graham, and Mr. Parkin, I just want to give uh, one snippet that I hope comes out clearly in this interview. And and what I hope that you glean is that our children, as they are finishing a classical Christian education up through 12th grade, are going to be leaving heritage with a Christian worldview that I don't believe that another uh, mode of education can provide. And here's my justification for that statement. Uh, most of us listening to this podcast, the education that we received went probably something like, um, <clears throat> I go to my math class and, and I have this silo of knowledge that I gain in math. And then I leave there and I go to my history course and that little silo of information is up in my brain. And then I go to my literature and that silo of information is stored in a different section of my brain. And, and these, and these disciplines are never talking to one another. And, um, Boy, we just don't believe that that's the case, starting from the premise that uh, all truth is God's truth and that Jesus is sovereign over it all. All of the earth is his. Then um, we ought to be seeking to make connections between these disciplines because we know that um, there is unifying truth in them all as there is a single creator over them. And so boy, at Heritage and in classical Christian education, our kids are getting history and the literature from the same time period that are informing one another. And in addition to that, then they're also getting uh, the scriptures from the same time period uh, or the development of the age of the church from the same time period, if that's what's appropriate for the, the time period that they're studying. And so as, as you think about this, I, I hope you're starting to see uh, our kids are actually not having a, a divorced sense of, well, I just took my class. I, I just walked out of third period and I had uh, ancient history and I'm going into my fourth period class and it's Brit lit. And, and then maybe I have a Bible class, maybe I don't, but that might just be another course that's not talking to these others. Instead, uh, in a, at Heritage in a Humanities course, you're getting, um, say, ancients for that year and it's, and it's a block period. And so they're getting the history from the ancient time period at and then they're getting the literature works from the same time period and then they're reading the scriptures that were written at the same time period so our kids aren't just getting this divorced sense of you know my history class has no bearing on uh the scriptures no instead they're actually seeing the the flow of history and the arc of redemptive history at the same time so we're seeing the lord at work in all these things with the philosophy that's being uh that we're getting out of the literature pieces that were written at the same time. And so, you know, as we just think about our kids and we say all the time, we want them to be prepared for college. Uh, and, you know, you hear us say all the time at Heritage, being prepared for college isn't just getting good test scores. It, you know, as we consider it, and as I'm saying it now, being prepared for college is actually they've considered the deepest and greatest questions of humanity. And uh, they've done it from the uh, greatest thinkers and from the greatest works that history has left us for centuries and millennia. So, and that's happening and at heritage and at classical Christian schools, because we're helping them shape a Christian worldview because it's not divorced, siloed thinking. In fact, it's, it's actually integrated. So um, 
yeah, our kids are going to have considered these things from uh, a biblical worldview, having been taught by God-fearing men and women who place the scriptures on top of these works, helping us to see the truths in them, and 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 also to to carefully recognize what's false in some of these works. Right. So, um, so that's what I hope comes out in this interview. I know I know it will to a greater or lesser extent. Well, welcome to the studio, Mr. Graham, Mr. Valley, and Mr. Parkin. Thanks for joining today, guys. Thanks, Mr. Nice. Happy to be here. That's a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, guys. Well, hey, uh, let's just dive right in. I want to. I've got several questions we want to get to today, and and I know the families want to hear what you have to say. So, my first question is uh, about the humanities and that term, just in its in and of itself, humanity. Humanities is not a common term today, so. Just help us understand what does that mean? Nolan, maybe, do you want to start us on that one? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so if you were to go to a public school, very frequently you would not find this term. Um, for us, it is nuts and bolts practically consumes literature and history, at least for our seventh through 12th graders. Um, but to get a, a good sense of what it is, it's, it's, you have to zoom out. So the, the, the project of what happens in humanities is to aim at the soul of a person. It is to make a person into what they could be by God's intention. So if the liberal arts are these disciplines which make the, the, a human what they could be or ought to be, this is the section of it which deals with the human soul and deals with big questions about what is a human, who is God, what's meaningful in life, what's salvation, and so our humanities program is six years of students reading some of the greatest minds in the Western civilization and thinking through, seeing the world through their eyes, and then backing up and looking at our culture and saying, okay, well, what do we see here today? And then all together filtering both the author's world and our world today uh, through the lens of scripture. What has God said? Who is God? And how does that have bearing on the question? These great human questions. That's really good, Mr. Graham. Uh, Mr. Parkin or Mr. Valley, do you want to add on? Yeah, I, in thinking about um, Peter Kreft's definition of education, I love what he says. He says something like this. Education is making the little humans a little more human. <laughs> and so regarding humanities, I think um, kind of what we're talking about, too, is the the studia humanitatis. So the early 1400s was this litany of studies derived from Greek and Latin classics that were intended to be studied. So as to as, as uh, Mr. Graham was talking about, shape the human. So to cultivate sublimity in the human, to to cultivate human excellence or the word that we as classical Christian educators use is virtue. So this English word virtue coming from the Latin word beer or we're a man. So the excellent human. So the humanities, as in our case and the curriculum we use here at Heritage. Um, so this amalgamation of history, philosophy, literature, theology, and, and so much more are all integrated so that the students can indulge in this studia humanitatis to wrestle with these questions that uh, Nolan brought up. Um, you know, what is man? What is what is a human being? Why am I here? What is a virtuous life? What is a good life? And in all of this, our, in our quest for what it means to be human, we ultimately long for our students to see the man. Um, Ecce homo, behold the man, the human Jesus. 
and we behold him. And in light of him, then we see our drastic limitations, our fallenness, and we see our need for him, our Savior, and and all that he offers us um, in himself. So I would say the, the humanities kind of allow our students to ultimately pursue um, and attain a, a true knowledge of, of, of God and, of, and ultimately of, of self. So. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Mr. Parkin, then, you know, we don't desire to disparage or, or knock down a, a different mode of education, but maybe could you help set this in contrast to what maybe is the normal paradigm out there? Sure. Uh, I think one of the building blocks of what we have inherited for a few generations in terms of an educational expectation is that people are good at doing things and they need to be prepared to do things well. So the the perspective of what a person is, man or woman, in a workplace or an environment, professionally speaking, is something that is, I think if we have any philosophy undergirding modern America, is simply pragmatism. We just do what works and do it until it's done. And that is a great departure from, frankly, centuries and centuries, if not millennia, of the ideal behind education, which as Mr. Graham and Mr. Valley said, is to improve the person and ultimately for them to encounter Christ and see their imaging of God made manifest. So I think, uh, you know, we, we, we tend to find in the corridors of our school and those like them a different mentality, something that used to be very pro-cultural and it's now perhaps counter-cultural, uh, that is to improve the nobility of the creature in the classroom. And that is simply to say, we want young men and women to understand who they are in Christ, why they were made by God, and how they might prosper, not because they are good at things, but because they are excellent creations of God himself. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Mr. Graham, couldn't someone make the argument that, um, you know, why do you read all these old books that, you know, no one, yeah, I've never read before. I don't know that my parents read before, you know, Jim just made that argument, but couldn't someone just reply and say, you can, you can do that with any book today, right? Why do you read these ones that are so challenging that mom and dad have never read? Yeah. it's a, that's a good question. Um, we, I am reading right now, uh, G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy. He's got this great phrase or definition of what tradition is, and he calls it the democracy of the dead, which is really a helpful perspective uh, that to understand what's valuable in life really should take the perspective of more than just what is modern and what is currently known, currently looked at, etc. There is a democracy, but it's not just ours. It's of all the people that have existed. And when you zoom out to Western civilization, you do actually see the tradition that has developed, uh, the works that have been written or the, you know, the plays that have been written that have proven themselves over centuries and over millennia to be worthwhile, not because they uh, answer questions even, but oftentimes just because they ask the right questions. Like when we are teaching humanities, it's not so much that we are <laughs> giving a book to say, okay, student, now consume this and believe everything they believe. Rather, it's to say, 
we're going to show you many authors and works that were very influential. But hey, student, you know that things can be powerful, but powerfully used for evil or good. Now we need to discern through these what actually is a worthwhile life. So yeah, it's true. Like many of us have not read many, many books, many good books. But given the democracy of the dead, we can say that tradition does exist. Uh, classics do exist and they exist for a reason. And then it really is uh, like a journey. It's an unfolding opportunity throughout our lives to, to get to crack open a book that's influenced, you know, centuries and centuries. And we can reap the same benefits of the soul that, that others have before. Mm. That's really good and really helpful. And I think, true, we sense that, right? There's, you know, we we tend to talk about and, and uh, consider that reading today, that there's such a, a vast number of books that are before us today that, you know, you could pick up a, a new book every single day and, and not even begin to scratch the surface of what's at Barnes and Noble or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so we, we talk about just curating even what we read and how do you, how do you know what's, what's worthy of your attention and your time, right? Our, our most valuable resource that's fleeting. Um, and so, yeah, heritage is uh, a recipient of this great tradition that we want to pass on to kids. These are the books that have stood the test of centuries or millennia, as, as you've all been saying, that um, they might come to the wrong answer, but they've been grappling with the right questions. And, and we want to point to those questions. Um, Very good. So, Mr. Graham, let, let me just go back to you here real quick. Would you mind just giving us the, the easy one of, hey, what's the structure and sequence of, of how our humanities course works in 7 through 12? Sure. Yeah. Um, it's really good. <laughs> I'll say that first. Uh, it is designed so well. So from 7th till 12th grade, there's six years. Then we're on, we do two cycles of three years for our students. So starting in 7th grade, the students enter into the ancient classics, and that'll cover all the way from creation with Genesis up to Christ. So we read Luke and Acts. Um, when they get into the eighth grade year, they go to medieval time period up till the Reformation. And then ninth grade year, they do modern classics. The program's designed that doesn't stop there. They actually cycle back through it in 10th grade, then 11th and 12th. And then the second time through, they read an entirely new set of classics, filling in this um, the context that, the, that they already know. And now they get more, more for it, more depth. Yeah, super helpful. So they it's ancient, medieval, modern, and then repeats ancient, medieval, modern all over again. That's right. That's right. Um, well, let's. I would love it if if each one of the three of you would share a book that you're either reading now in one of your classes, and something that the kids are getting out of it, or something you hope that they're getting out of it. Maybe a question that you're really grappling with. So maybe you should share one of the books that that you're currently or recently have walked through and and what you hope the kids are getting. And oh, and maybe start by telling us which levels you teach in that process too. Yeah, sure, I'm happy to go. Uh, right now I am teaching eighth grade and 10th grade humanities. So per Mr. Graham's paradigm there, that is medieval one and ancient two. So our 10th graders are going back to the ancient period and covering in much greater depth and breadth material there. The first round through the eighth grade is touching on the church fathers, kind of the apostolic history that comes out of the early church going into the fall of Rome and then early medievalism. Eventually we hit 
you know, bondage of the will, kind of capping with Luther at the Reformation. Most interestingly, right now, though, we're we're wrapping up in 10th grade in Humanities 4, the book by Aristotle, Nicomachean Ethics. And Ethics here is trying to grapple with the questions of basically what, what actually aligns a person to worthy living. And the question ultimately becomes very grounded for the average reader because it's trying to say, listen, if you're trying to aim for something that is worth pursuing, what should that be? And Aristotle coming in the aftermath of the Peloponnesian War and the downfall of the great city-state project of Greece, you have Athens, who was kind of the paradigm of the best of the best, and they crater under pressure. Aristotle is asking the question, well, if that's the case, then what, what are we left with? What are we supposed to do in order to be better people? And the questions that we've had all throughout the last two weeks of discussion in class have been regarding, you know, what is virtue? And are, are we supposed to follow virtue? Aristotle says the, the best aim of man is to pursue virtue. But kind of the, the resonating question that hangs there and that thankfully many of our students have keenly gotten to is, well, how do you define virtue? Because virtue in ancient Greece is still rather pragmatic at the end of the day. It's just saying what, what is best for the most amount of people. It lacks the great clarifying lens of the gospel that renders our virtue in enjoying God through obedience to him. It misses the object. So we've talked a lot about the subject, who we are and what we're doing, and the object, why we worship, why do we do what we do. And those have led to not only great conversations with students and with uh, a lot of time in class just trying to figure out what is right, but also what is, what is quote, right or righteousness actually applied. It's a beautiful thing. We're, we're trying to get at what is worship in a human context. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jim. Super. Boy. Uh, I, I, I listen to you guys talk and I think, uh, I wish I was in there, but I'm so thankful that my kids will get to be in there and, and engage in these things and be shaped by, um, you men and, and these ideas and, uh, the gospel that you're pointing them to in it. So thank you. All right. Mr. Valley, do you want to go? Yeah, sure. Well, no one will laugh at me. Um, we are, <laughs> I already know where this is. Yeah, come on. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I teach, um, uh, omnibus one. So, um, uh, ancient one and we are currently in the odyssey we've been through genesis exodus um first second uh, samuel first second kings um we studied the law so we looked at um, hammurabi's code uh juxtaposed to the mosaic law um and so now we have moved into the odyssey and this is where no one's gonna laugh at me because i sit in this book because it's just good to get out of so um and the odyssey there's so 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 many things that i long for my students to uh, apprehend from this book. But one of the, one of the overarching um, ideas that I, I hope for them to grasp is this, it's this, it's a story about the journey home. And so what does this mean for us as readers? Well, you know, we could look at this as man's innate longing for his eternal home. Yet at the same time, this innate longing for, for peace and for rest and for harmony in the soul, um, something for which we are always striving. Um, but this doesn't come without struggle, without suffering. 
Um, so this is what we talk a lot about in class. What, what does it mean to suffer? What, what is, what, does good come out of suffering? And and many of the the quote from the book is many many of the pains uh, he um, obvious obvious how about Odysseus suffered in his spirit on the wide sea, and the Odyssey does in a sense portray this this picture of the Christian life. And this is essentially what I hope uh, for my students to gain an understanding with respect to this book is that we too are like Odysseus, uh, a man of many ways. Um, I love that Greek word polytropon. Um, it's, it's impossible to interpret in English, so we'll go with many ways. Um, but we too are on this journey and we are going to encounter Circes. We're going to encounter Calypsos and Polyphemuses who will attempt to distract us and deter us from the path that leads to life. And we must be aware that these obstacles exist and and we must know how to confront them and we must exercise virtue uh, and wisdom in in, in both uh, uh, circumnavigating evil and enduring trials on this journey we call life so that we might make it home to Ithaca, uh, or to our heavenly home, which ties into this need for, for peace and harmony in, in the soul. And, and what I ultimately hope to communicate with the students is apart from Christ, there is no way to eternal rest in heaven. And uh, simultaneously, there's no, there's no ultimate rest or peace or harmony in the soul. So um, I hope my students get that on, on life's journey. If we, if we do trust in Christ, he will give us everything we need to endure and ultimately to make it home. Mm. That's good. Mr. Graham, I know you teach seventh and ninth also. You can do anything from seventh grade except for the, the Odyssey. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. Um, well, we just wrapped up uh, Edmund Burke's Reflections on the Revolution in France in ninth grade. And it was so much fun. I wanted to talk about that, but I think I even more actually want to talk about the seventh grade class. I've been enjoying them both so much. So in seventh grade, we're doing um, the, th the three parts of seventh grade in ancients. We study the Hebraic tra tradition, the Greeks, and the Romans. And so right now we're with dealing with Greeks, and we're in the Greek tragedies. So it's a lot of fun. You get the three Greek tragedians from Athens, um, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. And we're in the f we just read Aeschylus's um, trilogy, the Theban trilogy. So it's it's a tragedy, and it enters you into a family of two brothers and it's a context of just awfulness sin from you know between the starting with the two brothers there's the, there's an adult there's adultery and then a murder and it goes back and forth between the families and then the family members and so ultimately this is Agamemnon's family um, Agamemnon was one of the kings who went off to battle in Troy and he's on his way back and he's got a faithful wife just waiting for him to get home for 10 years, but waiting in bitterness and waiting to kill him for his wrongs that he had done before he left. And so the, the play is just full of death and blood and all the difficult things. And so the question that it, we, it's just the theme of the book is like, what is justice? Like who, who's done justice when you, you take an eye for an eye and when you do back to the one who has done, when will that cycle end? And so the reason that these Greek tragedies were made was actually uh, the city paid for them. And then it was also paid through a, a wealthy citizen who would have a super tax placed on them. 
And it's like, why was Greece funding these public plays? What was the, the goal? And they were used for education. There was a purpose behind them. So Aeschylus's point in this trilogy, when he finally gets to the end, Athena intervenes and sets up a court of law, which is great. And in this court of law, she says, this is going to be the place of justice, and we will um, adjudicate what's right and what's wrong here. And then the book ends with a settled peace. And so what do I hope my kids learn? I want them to see sin. I want them to see the messiness of, of, you know, of the world we live in. And then we consider today, like, is law a solution? And the answer was yes and no. <laughs> yes, because law is very good for what it can do. In fact, it was America is built on, you know, the, the, the pillar of the Greeks. And so we hope for a court of law here, too. But there are insufficiencies with law, too. Like, you know, humans have a limit, limited vision. We don't always know what happened prior. We don't always have access to all the facts. And there was some Jewish philosopher who said, you know, I can't imagine justice ever existing because it would require the resurrection of the dead. We would have to have, you know, not only a man who commits the badness, but what about the one who did bad to him? We'd have to resurrect him and then punish him. But where are we going to get that? And so it ultimately comes back to like Jerusalem. It all comes down to one place. You get Jesus Christ on the cross who has the just payment for all sin for anybody who would come to him. And so forgiveness becomes a possibility for humans. You can actually break the cycles of vengeance because of Christ. And also you have a God who sees all things and he has perfect judgment. And so you can entrust justice into his hands as well and also do justice on earth modeled after him. So what's the point? Like Jesus. Amen. Amen, Mr. Graham. Fantastic. Yeah. Amen. So Mr. Parkin, you just chimed in. Help help me out here. Several of you have just uh, brought up these foundational works that our kids are reading. I could imagine some parents are saying, uh, boy, an awful lot of works by uh, pagans, these non-Christians. Um, why do we do that? Why aren't we just reading a bunch of books that were written uh, only by believers and from the Christian worldview? Well, the most fundamental element there is that all truth as an existential statement, that what truth is, is belonging to the domain of God. We, we understand Yahweh, our covenant God, he is the, our external standard at all times in all places. His attribute itself is truth. We can't understand that anywhere as belonging to someone else. And by God's grace, he has ordained so many enlightened pagans to wrestle with the same questions that everyone wrestles with. We think about Ecclesiastes 3.11, where God has put eternity into the heart of man. That is not because you're a Christian. That is because you are a human. You are a person bearing the image of God. Even those who are outside the fold of the church, historically or otherwise, are still yearning for fulfillment. We have a God-shaped hole in our hearts, and that goes for Euripides and Aeschylus, as well as it goes for Jim here in the modern day. Mm -hmm. So when we think about these pagan authors, we, we see how by the common grace of the Lord's allotment of things, they have asked, they've come so close to understanding what it is to be a human, what it is to understand pain, what it is to desire something beyond oneself. 
And in many cases, sadly, they never knew the gospel. They were outside the, the bounds of redemption in that regard, historically. But, you know, the questions that Plato and Aristotle and Josephus and Philo, all these ancient men and their, their counterparts, they're, they're asking these questions that are intimately human questions. Who are we? Why are we? Who do we relate to? What we see is that the, the great trove of information and insight we get from these ancients, these medievals, even these moderns who are outside of the church, nevertheless, they are wrestling with what it is to be men and women. And we see ultimately that they have a great amount of insight to offer to us. The difference is that in many cases, sadly, they are outside the church. But the gospel is the consuming answer to so many of their issues. Like I mentioned Aristotle earlier or his progenitor Plato, they ask so many questions. They get so close to what it is to be virtuous, so close to be human, so close to be selfless and self-sacrificial. But ultimately, they don't really have a good reason to say why. It's just it's just because it works for most people. We know why as Christians, because it is Christ's work in our stead, that all is to be glorifying to God. So we do have the great kind of key that unlocks that last padlock of information. But these men and women who come before us, they offer so much. God created the pagans as much as he created the Christians. And we are grateful for his ordinating all these things. Can I jump in with just one thought? Please. Um, <clears throat> stuck out to me very much in seminary when I read through 30 classics or whatever it was, just the basic proposition that uh, though truth is narrow, it can be found broadly. Jesus is truth. That's a very narrow thing. Um, truth is by its definition narrow, but it doesn't mean it doesn't show up everywhere else because God has created yeah. all creation, right? So that's a pithy way for it. And then um, one verse that has stuck out to me a lot for what we're doing in humanities is Hebrews 5.14 which says that solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And that's exactly what I hope for one myself and two my kids. Like I want to be, them to be able to look at the world and learn to discern what's good, what's bad. You can only do that by practicing it. That's really good. Nolan, would you, while you have the mic there, would you share, you know, as we're talking about, um, studying these works by pagans and, and getting to the heart and, the, and there's common grace that the Lord has given them to, to approximate truth and to, to reveal things to us. Would you share a few of the big names that they might read in ninth grade that may surprise our parents that, well, I, I had no idea that our kids would read um, these few authors. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> We're coming up on some significant works here. So we will be studying shortly within the next month and a half or so ninth grade um, Marx's Communist Manifesto, and we will get to uh, Hitler's Mein Kampf, My Struggle. And so with those, you get a lot of um, just what came out of the Enlightenment with the atheism, um, and then attempts at fixing the world's problems, but again, doing it from a framework that is uh, bent. And so it'll be a lot of fun with the kids to actually sort through those difficult, deep works, and then you know, see what the scripture says 
And we do also positively read Edmund Burke and other great voices that actually offer, in many ways, a biblical, solid uh, grounding perspective for him, too. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Jason, were you going to hop in there? Did I cut you off? Oh, yeah, I was going to add a footnote uh, to the uh, previous uh, question. It was just it was simply um, not looking at these ideas of paganism and Christianity being in contrast to each other. So um, pagan stories and Christianity, not in opposition, but pagan stories moving us in the direction of the revelation of Christ. Um, and hmm. so it's 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 like thinking on God working through that period of time. Um, as you said, giving common grace, uh, general revelation. Um, and I heard it once said that he was, in doing so, he was bringing forth uh, glimmers of himself, which mm -hmm. I thought was a really uh, sweet way of saying that. Mm. That yeah. sounds a lot like how the early church fathers thought from what I can, from a lot of what I've read. That's good. <laughs> right. And it's just Paul in Acts 17 talking about the unknown God being yes. worshipped in Greece. Yes. It's been yes. Yahweh the whole time. Yes. We all understand it that way. Well, gentlemen, I'm immensely thankful for you. And just as as we close uh, the interview today, I want to circle back to something we said at, near the top of the interview. And that's like as, as we just consider our children and uh, this model of of education and this way of studying the world and and all that the Lord has revealed to us in it and through many modes and and means. I'm just thinking of our kids and and how we're preparing them for um, life after heritage and, and wherever the Lord's going to take them when they're 18, university or the work or the military or the mission field or, or whatever it is, um, these are these are young men and women who are, um, I, I think, um, being given a worldview that is ordered and that is cohesive and that is founded on the word of Jesus. And, and I think this is, uh, and I know you guys, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but this is the, the means of education that prepares our kids to face a world that is antagonistic to the cause of Christ. Um, mm -hmm. This is not, uh, you know, so often, and we said this near the top, so often most education is, um, hey, I'm going to go to my, my history class today and I'm taking ancient history and then I'm going to go to my literature class and I'm taking Brit Lit. And, um, and these are just, these are two disciplines that never talk to each other then. And so our kids are mo in most settings are being, uh, it, and, and boy, who knows how science or math plays into those things or their, mm -hmm. their foreign language, but most kids are getting an education that, um, they're just, you know, uh, I think passively being trained that, you know, these, these different, um, disciplines and subjects are just silos that never speak to one another and have no bearing on one another. And truth is, is a fragmented, disparate thing. Um, and, and yet I think in, in classical education, classical Christian education, as you guys were saying, uh, boy, in your classes, they're getting history plus literature, plus philosophy, plus theology all at once and talking about the deepest issues of life. If we want our kids to be ready to face a world that um, is antagonistic to Christ, uh, I think this is the best way to prepare them to do it. Um, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. <laughs> I am more than happy to send my young boy, Mason, you know, to have him get in these classes with these guys and then all my other kids along the way too. It is, it's a really great education. I'm thankful for you guys. Yeah, same. Thankful to be here. Yeah. Likewise. Yep. Yeah. All right, men. Thank you so much. I'm grateful for your work.
Thank you, guys. Thank you, David. Same dude. Thanks a lot. I hope that the interview with Dr. Valley, Mr. Graham, and Mr. Parkin was a great encouragement to you. And, and for so many of our families who their oldest children might be in first or second or third grade, we, we love providing the update and, and a vision for what our kids are going to be experiencing one day and what we're preparing them for. And you've heard me say as a dad who has two at this age level where they're in reading these great texts and grappling with the biggest thoughts and questions of humanity. I'm very thankful for these men and the other men and women that are teaching our kids and not just for skill sets. Skill sets are good. We understand our children are, are going to need jobs one day and they're going to be out there in the workforce. But uh, as hopefully you've heard us say many, many times, we are more concerned about the type of man or woman that our children are going to be one day than how much money they're going to make than what kind of uh, test scores they're going to get, and which college they go to. Those are all byproducts of education, but we can't reduce education to those things. Instead, we know that if we want our children to be men and women who are ready to go and make Jesus known in all the world and to be thoughtful, winsome, wise men and women that they need to have considered the biggest ideas and have done it through a Christian worldview. And, and there is no better way to do that than through classical Christian education. So I hope you got a taste of that today. And, and I hope you have a great vision for what our children are being prepared for and how these men in particular, but the other men and women also are shaping our kids to be ready, not just for the workforce, that certainly, but so much more than that. Thank you for listening to the Griffin Rundown. As always, it is a pleasure to partner with you to cultivate our children, to be lifelong learners who think and live for the glory of Jesus Christ. We'll be back again next Tuesday.